Approach. Hey, this is Dulles Approach Control. We're tracking a fast-moving primary heading towards the White House. The White House has been advised. All right, I'll tell them. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I'll keep you advised. Thank you very much. 31 There's a reason this is called America's it looks like it went in the Pentagon. We didn't we are earned that title. There's probably from nineteen seventy seven when these airplanes first arrived. There's not been another wing that has done what this wing has done for its country than the 557. No. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Tinker Talks. This is your audio format podcast that talks about the happenings behind the fence line of Tinker Air Force Base. Uh, today, we do have a special episode as we're recording this with a video podcast uh, in a special event in a remembrance and honor of something that happened long ago that none of us certainly will ever forget. Um, and so with us this morning, we actually have two very special guests uh, and both members of uniquely involved with uh, the 552 Air Control Wing 20 years ago on this day. So uh, with us this morning is retired Brigadier General Ben Robinson. He was the 552 Air Control Wing Commander from March 2000 until November 2002. He currently serves in the Governor Stitt's cabinet, on Governor Stitt's cabinet, as the Secretary of Military and Veterans Affairs. And also with us this morning is the current commander, that is Colonel Kevin Coyle. Uh, and you are actually here on your fifth assignment with us. So good morning to you both. And uh, so with that, sir, uh, General Robinson, if you wouldn't mind, uh, could you give us kind of like the 200-word breakdown of uh, who you are and how you got to this point? Well, uh, 34-year military veteran, uh, four of that in the Army, uh, 30 in the Air Force. I enlisted uh, in the Army in 1968, uh, private, and was uh, on my way to uh, basically Vietnam as infantry. Uh, had an opportunity to apply for Army helicopter pilot training, which I did, warrant officer training. So I spent... Um, three years of my four-year enlistment as a helicopter pilot, Huey, and Chinook pilot. Got out of the Army, went back to college. Um, because I had to enter the Air Force without a diploma, but I had a, deg a degree completion certificate, right. I had to enlist in the Air Force. Mm -hmm. And then I had to apply for OTS, which is what I did. So I came back in, I went from Chief Warrant Officer to E2, <laughs> which is a little bit of a shock to my system. I uh, spent 30 years in the Air Force, um, had a magnificent career. I uh, flew B-52s, which is an airplane I truly love, mm. flew Air Force helicopters. I came here as a young captain in 1980. We were just getting our first airplanes. Um, spent time in, uh, in TAC headquarters in Europe and European Command. Spent three years in space program. Mm. Uh, commanded the first Joint Stars wing. Uh, time on the air staff, 8th Air Force Vice Commander, and then back here is the Wing Commander. So, very fortunate. Um, retired from the Air Force, went to work for Boeing, and uh, was in Seattle, Anaheim, and Huntington Beach before I finally came back to Oklahoma City. Retired from Boeing and started a consulting company, uh, Aerospace Consulting, and we had clients in Kansas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, and Texas. 
retired from that or sold our company, what the assets of it, and uh, got a call from the governor's office, uh, offered me an opportunity to be the secretary for military and veterans affairs, and that's where I am right now, and absolutely loving it. That's pretty impressive. And so did they keep the the name? I know you you grabbed your your call sign from from the right. wing here. Uh, well, it's, the wing the wing didn't give it up. I just, <laughs> I'm kind of borrowing it. So right. uh, Century One LLC <laughs> is the name of the consulting company, which uh, a lot of people recognize that. Right. Uh, every time General Co Colonel Coyle goes to fly, he advertises for me. So I appreciate that. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> and he says it every time he every time Absolutely. he uses it. Uh, of course, you know the the Huey. Uh, what a great helicopter that was. It Look, was. There's nothing like the sound of those of those propellers. But both were great helicopters. Chinook was a great helicopter too. And right. Chinooks would take a lot of punishment. Yeah. It was mostly air, you know. So right. bullets would go right through it. So. A lot of holes, <laughs> but they kept going. So, sir, Colonel Coyle. Yeah, for me, uh, I'm just a young buck. I've I've been around 23 years in the Air Force now, and um, started my career out in '99 at Tyndall, I, and uh, and just kind of flew from there. I've been here at the 552 now. This will be kind of my fourth assignment here at the 552. Uh, first one uh, back in 99 was as an air weapons officer, kind of a new air battle manager learning the ropes of flying in the E3. And, you know, it was a different time back then. We uh, were on the road quite a bit and mm. it was just really busy and a great time to be here. Uh, left here and went to ground radar at Hill for a few years. So had a chance to learn a little bit about how the ground radar system works and how we employ kind of longer duration radar capabilities from the ground, which is fantastic. And then went to Nellis as an instructor at the weapons school and then and then kind of started my joint time. Uh, went to Army's Command and General Staff College uh, and followed on to Joint Special Operations Command where I had an opportunity to command some air units um, out in Iraq and Afghanistan over my time there, which was awesome. And then following that assignment, came back to Tinker as a squadron commander of the 960th which is the same squadron I was in in, uh, in 2001, um, which was just a brand new squadron then and, and just kind of maturing. And it was great to come back to your roots. Uh, and after finishing that job, I, I went out to uh, U.S. European Command as the Chief of Joint Fires for a few years and then had the opportunity to come back as the Vice Commander here and then fleet it up uh, last, this last summer. So very exciting to be a part of the 552 and then to, to have the history that I have here with this, this organization. It's awesome. Well-groomed to take the position you're in today. Yeah, and of course, the ground radar, I mean, that, that's integrated it is. with, with the, uh, the AWACS uh, similar mission sets. But also, to, uh, you got time to serve in JSOC, which is obviously, that's just cool in and of itself. <laughs> but uh, um, certainly you've come a long way from from doing spreadsheets in in 2001 but we'll we'll get to that That's in right. just a second um so of course september 11th 2001 is a day that none of us certainly most everybody will never forget and even those that were not born uh will learn about this in history for probably ever uh, and never forget this um so general i had read somewhere uh something where you said that coming to work that morning you were just expecting a pretty routine day. I had some things going on, but it's instead found ourselves at war. Do you remember how your day started and, and what your, your planned day looked like back then? Started uh, like every other day. Uh, uh, my chief of staff and I would go to the health and wellness center. We'd work out five o'clock, six o'clock, go home, clean up, and go to the flight line. I, I'm a flight line guy, so I'd go to the flight line every morning at seven o'clock. Eight o'clock, we were having the associate commanders from Tinker over for a wing overview and indoctrination uh, 
orientation to what the 552 mission was. Mm -hmm. This consisted of a, a wing overview, which I would give at 8 o'clock in the wing conference room, followed by stand-up. And stand-up is a unique place in the wing. It's uh, yesterday's flyers, today's flyers, and tomorrow's flyers, all the maintenance status of all the aircraft and any intel that we need to share. Mm -hmm. So about, uh, we're all in the conference room. I've got the Air Base Wing Commander, who's still a very good dear friend of mine today, Dennis Kahn, sitting right next to me. Uh, the um, Hospital Commander, the 3rd Herd Commander, the 3rd Communications Group Commander mm -hmm. was there. Um, the Canadian Commander, we had Canadians assigned to us. Uh, so it was all the new commander, and most of them were new in their positions, so it was going to be a good overview for them. Uh, a little bit before uh, 8 o'clock, uh, my secretary, Debbie Urquhart, comes in uh, and says there's been a terrible accident in New York City. At that time, we had a TV up in the corner of the command of the uh, conference room, so we turned it on and we're sitting there watching uh, this tragic accident in New York City, what we thought was a tragic accident. And we actually saw the second airplane hit. Mm. Uh, every one of us knew that this was some kind of an attack, uh, a terrorist attack. So we broke up uh, the meeting and uh, we called their senior battle staff for the 552nd, which was the group commanders and the squadron commanders to immediately come to the command center, command post. Uh, and we tried to talk about what was going on. We knew that we were gonna get called real soon and real often. Uh, so we, we immediately stopped all flying uh, and we decided we'd, we'd meet again on the hour, nine o'clock, 45 minutes later, basically. And, kind of discuss what we found out. Yeah. Uh, so we did that and we met. Uh, I did not know this until later, but um, several people have told me that, uh, you know, there's three styles of leadership. There's a democratic style, the authoritarian style, and a laissez-faire style. Laissez-faire is one where you have tremendous confidence in the people that work for you and you don't need to give a lot of guidance. Yeah. That I had said, we all know what to do, now let's just go do it. And that was how the meeting broke up. Uh, and they reminded me of that years later that I had said that. Uh, so that's kind of the first, that's the opening volley of, of that morning, uh, right. as far as I was concerned, and the wing was concerned. And I'm assuming that was a compliment to your leadership style, sir. Um, <laughs> it, it, it was. I went mm -hmm. on to teach leadership at OSU for about six years, so mm -hmm. I always remember that as how you do that. When, when is the appropriate time? that you do not have to have a, be a hands-on commander, that you can stand back and just let people do their job. And that was the time. And, and I know it's, you know, people assume in, in the military we train for these things, and, and I've been on active duty, and I know we do train for these things, but still, when it actually happens, like there is a moment where you're, you know, it sets you off just a little bit um, before your brain starts going. Well, maybe up. we can talk about that later, but... Yeah, uh, we sure can. I think that that morning was a result of a lot of things that had taken place over the years. So right. I think we can maybe we can talk about that briefly. We sure will, um, sir. Um, can you tell us kind of what you were? Doing? I know we we referred to spreadsheets um, <laughs> yeah. and where your career has come from, but what were you doing that morning? So uh, the 960th was a brand new squadron. It just mm -hmm. stood up, and I was asked to to be the resource advisor for that squadron, which is a <laughs> challenging job in and of itself. But mm -hmm. uh, to stand up a squadron was a little bit daunting and. Uh, so I just happened to be in early that morning and I was working on a spreadsheet. I was trying to figure out how we were going to manage the funds and the support, the resources that we'd had and then keep track of that for, for reporting purposes. And so I was in there building the spreadsheet and, and then the, uh, the squadron commander at the time, Lieutenant Colonel Williams had come in and 
he essentially said, hey, what are you doing? I said, I'm working on a spreadsheet. He goes, well, you wouldn't believe what just happened. You know, this airplane hit the tower. And I go, hit what tower? And he kind of told me. And I go, well, that's dumb. I figure you could avoid those things. They're pretty big. And we kind of chuckled a little and thought, man, it's tragic. But uh, okay, great. And then and then he turned on the TV. And uh, we just happened to, in a similar fashion, saw the second airplane hit. And we immediately looked at each other and thought, this is no longer an accident. And he uh, he sent me home quickly to go pick up my 72-hour bag, which we were required to keep on hand at all times uh, in, in preparation for just things like this. And and so I ran home as quick as I could to Moore and, and uh, drove back and just happened to get through the gates just before we went into uh, FBCon Delta and, and shut things down here on Tinker. So very fortunate for me I was able to get back. Right. And we'll get into that in just a second. But, uh, and, of course, you know, the, the reality of military life is that you may be working on a spreadsheet and money, of course, resource advisor, it's a, it's an extremely important <laughs> part of, of what happens uh, within the military. But at the end of the day, you know, the, the spreadsheet goes away and, and you get ready to do what, what we actually train and, and are called on by the country to do. So, um, so sir, w- within an hour of the attacks, um, the base, as you said, Colonel Coyle, did go into FPCon. That's Force Protection Delta. Um, and you faced the task of getting your air crews back onto the base. So, General, can you describe what was going through your mind after you got the first call telling your wing commanders or your wing members um, you were getting the calls from, from members that were stuck outside the fence? And I think you said this this was happened the day after, correct? So. So the first day was an absolute blur. I, I think the uh, two hardest people, working people in the world at that particular day was the OG and the LG because they were working on, on building crews and chalking airplanes. Uh, and we were going to be sending airplanes all over the place. We'd already, there were already three airplanes in the system from that morning, uh, and we had to put more airplanes up, and we were going to get calls real fast. Um, I would, had gone to the Health and Wellness Center, which is our little aerobics workout center, and with the chief staff, which we did every morning at 5 o'clock. As I'm leaving at 6, now this is on the 12th, uh, phone rings, and I answered the phone, and it was a young man wanting to know if we were doing aerobics testing this morning, and I said, no, it's been canceled. Now, I didn't know if it had been canceled or not, but I didn't think we should be. I thought we, everybody should be at their unit. So, I told him he needed to go straight to his unit, and he asked me who it was, and I told him who it was. He said, sir, I'm in your wing, and we cannot get on the base. He said, "They are the, there's only two gates open, apparently, and they are backed up. We haven't moved 20 feet in the last 30 minutes. So I called the command post, and they said, we are inside of two hours, and we haven't seen anyone. We haven't seen any crews have checked in, no maintenance have checked in. Something's wrong. So uh, Chief Staff and I jumped in my car. We drove out to the air depot gate, and sure enough, I mean, they were pretty much taking cars apart, inspecting them, which I have no problem with that. Right. Uh, went to the back gate, same thing. And I realized that, you know, at this rate, we're not going to be able to make our first takeoff. So there happened to be a, a cop over there, and I went over to him and said, come here, I want you to follow me. And we drove around behind the base, and there had been some construction on the base, and there was a construction road outside the fence, and there was a place where the road and the fence were fairly close, so Hmm. I stopped, got out, and I said, I need you to cut a hole through the fence. And he looked, (laughs) and my my chief of staff thinking, okay, we're going to get a new wing commander tomorrow morning. I said, I need you to cut a hole through the fence right here, and we're going to make a new gate. And he said, can I do that? And I said, 
have you got bolt cutters? He said, yes. I said, then you could do it. Mm-hmm. And so he, I mean, he went after that that fence with a certain amount of, <laughs> of enthusiasm. Right. Cut us a nice hole, and then he turned around and he asked me if I wanted another hole. And I said, no, I'm pretty sure one hole per war is all I'm gonna be authorized. <laughs> so I said, now I need you to get get on the state police, city police in Mid- Midwest City, Dell City, Oklahoma City, get on radio stations, do not tell them where this hole is at. Tell them just to come to the south gate and that there'll be a cop car there with the lights flashing, that policeman will tell them where to go to come through the fence. Mm-hmm. About half an hour, they come start trickling through the fence. And we were about 30 minutes late getting the jet off, but we extended. So, um, I called the Air Base Wing Commander, who's sitting next to me yesterday morning, said, Dennis, I cut a hole through your fence this morning. He said, yeah, I already heard. I said, I guess that news travels pretty fast. He said, it does. I said, how about General Johnson? He said, yep, he knows too. I said, what did he say? He said, wing commander's got to do what he's got to do. So I called my boss, uh, General Hobbins, down at 12th Air Force, told him. He said, we got you covered. Don't worry about it. I said, okay. So I figured, you know, two days, it'll be wired back up again. It stayed open for about eight or nine. You probably came through it once or twice. sir. I called it the AWACS gate, uh, crew members called it the Robinson gate, and the Air Base Wing called it Gate 99, so we actually had a <laughs> gate name for it. So right. uh, that was uh, that was the second morning. Um, and I think it really got to the crews about, this is important. Mm-hmm. What we're doing here is darned important. You don't just cut a hole through the fence on every day. Uh, one morning, I got a call from the SPs and said, sir, your secretary is at the back gate. I said, she is. He said, what's she doing? He said, sir, she's trying to come through the back gate. And I said, let me speak to her. So I talked to her. I said, Debbie, that gate is not for you. That gate is for air crew members and maintenance only. You go through the normal gate. And I said, I'll see you when you get to the office. So I got back on the phone. He said, boy, she's not happy. I said, she'll get over it. But uh, (laughs) I had to tell her that, that... Neither you do not get to go through that gate. That's the deal I have with the Air Base Wing Commander, that that's for air crews, maintenance only. And it's not just any air crew, it's it's 552nd. So that was the second morning. It's Uh, pretty swift thinking on your part, sir, to to think to go create a new gate for, but I mean, it is a a critically important mission set that's run out of the 552. I mean, I kind of had this uh, thing about life. What are you going to do, send me back to Vietnam? I mean, really. (laughs) So it had to be done. Colonel Coyle would do exactly the same thing. I think it's inherent to commanders. You have to think agilely on your feet. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's exactly what we did. Do it and ask forgiveness later. Exactly right. And uh, good good thinking to tell them not not to pinpoint over the radio exactly where that hole is because uh, the radios out there aren't secure so something that was uh, quite uh, quite amusing to me was years later uh I'm, I'm i'm teaching for osu i'm an adjunct professor for osu and uh, a couple of my students had were 552 enlisted and one of them said <laughs> i was sitting in the line out there on i-40 and someone came up and tapped on my window and he turned around and scared me to death and it was a state policeman. And he said, are you in the 552nd? He said, yes. He said, you're to go to the back gate and find a cop with a flashing light. And he told him to cut right across the median 
and go down sooner. So he did. He cut right across the stop traffic and he went right straight across the median there at I-40 and turned and head, headed back to Sooner and went around to the gate. He said that day on, he never even bothered going through the gates, but he said he remembered that that morning being told to pull out of traffic and go down. It's awesome. It's impressive. Um, and so, Colonel Coyle, sometimes when a combat situation arises, military members' jobs do change, uh, like yours kind of did. Um, you did switch roles. Did you switch roles for that day or, or the coming days following the attack? What, what did you end up doing after that point? Well, <clears throat> normally uh, you'll, you kind of have two or three jobs. You have your primary duty, which is going to be your training and your execution of your combat mission in the aircraft. And then you're going to have some additional duties that are kind of placed upon you that keep the squadron running and, and, and keep things functioning in the unit. Um, on that day, all additional duties were moot. And so everybody went and focused 100% of their attention on their combat duties. Mm -hmm. uh, that included things like mission planning, cells, and standing up a, a, an entire C2 infrastructure for just doing mission planning and execution briefs for crews that were going to come in. Uh, we stood up the alert facility and, and sat alerts. We put people in the base hotel and took over the entire building uh, with nothing but air crew on different alert statuses that allowed them to remain in place for 72 hours instead of fighting the gates. Right. You had crews in place. Uh, there were some other things airfield related that were a challenge uh, that caused pilots to do things that they don't like to do, like uh, declare due regard, which is a very special situation allowing you to, to essentially say I'm, I'm taking accountability for my own safety and for the safety of my aircraft and those around me by flying mm -hmm. even though air traffic control at large had shut down the entire airspace infrastructure of the United States so there were a lot of challenges that day to go through that were all new to everybody mm -hmm. uh, the youngest pilot to the oldest pilot we had not done that in the in the United States ever so kind of a, um, a change in mentality. So we, I think we all knew right off the bat that this wasn't, uh, this wasn't a game. It wasn't an exercise. We were going to be tested and we were going to be tried, but we had the top cover of our senior leadership to make sure that as long as we were doing things safely and had a good reason for what we were trying to accomplish, uh, they had our backs, even though maybe things weren't done 100% perfectly. Right. And so it was, uh, it was great. I think events like that really do... Uh, you know, just cause something to snap inside you, and you just you just become very mission focused very quickly. Right. Did, was it surreal for you coming back as a as a command? I mean, has it ever ever think back to that morning and think there's no way you would have possibly known you'd be back here as a commander of the same the same wing? So it's interesting in the hallway of the of the 960th building. So back then. You can't tell, but there's a parking lot over here. There used to be, do you remember these, sir? There was kind of that uh, trailers. It was almost like a loading dock. Mm -hmm. And then essentially what we did is we partitioned the inside of that loading dock to make kind of spaces for two squadrons, the 965th and the 960th. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of shared that space. And um, there's some pictures on the wall in the new 960th facility or building right across the street here. And one of those pictures is of a hall call uh, where the squadron commander was giving guidance and direction, and uh, and there's a picture of me against the wall as a lieutenant, and I just uh, I look completely uh, at ease. I think with what was going on, I, it's very surreal to come back and and be in an organization that you've fought with for 20 years plus. Um, it's also very exciting because I know where we're going and and what we're trying to accomplish. I think it's good. Awesome. 
And so after the attacks, the FAA had directed all civilian aircraft to land immediately. And I, I remember that too. Like it just was like strange to think there's not a single airplane in the sky. Um, the AWACSer did stay in the air and took control of the nation's airspace, correct? Yes. Okay. And so um, the AWACS was tasked to, to be the first aircraft in orbit over the White House. And that was, to, was about what, 45 minutes after the tower hit. Um, and if an order came to shoot down a suspected hijacker airline, was the AWACS able to to kind of execute their mission and and help with that? Was was that ever even discussed? Well, it wasn't discussed prior to that day. I mean, you don't anticipate that you're going to have to go out and shoot down an airliner. Right. Um, uh, let me give you a little background on what happened that morning that created that that situation that morning. Sure. Um, we had been heavily tasked. This wing is one of the most heavily tasked wings in the Air Force. It always has been from the very beginning. Uh, and we did not have the, the luxury of having sorties set aside just for NORAD because mm -hmm. they tend to be fairly non-productive as far as training. So I had worked out an agreement with the 1st Air Force Commander, uh, Major General Larry Arnold, to do an exercise. We called it Agile Sentry. And that was that any airplane flying on any training mission could be immediately chopped to NORAD and pick up the NORAD mission whether it had a battle staff on it or board, nowhere to battle staff or not. Mm -hmm. So we trained our mission crews to understand how to work with NORAD. So we had exercised that and it went quite well. And this immediately chop over went quite well and we did it unannounced to the crew. So mm -hmm. we wanted to see because many times the crew would be caught totally flat-footed. You know, we're just gonna, now we're NORAD asset, right. go someplace. Mm -hmm. And and the, exercise the NORAD system to get in orbit, get fighters, even launch fighters, and, and we went through the whole scenario. So it was that scenario, basically, that took place that morning. So the aircraft commander, uh, Jeffrey Van Dusen, did you know Jeffrey? I did, yes sir. Okay. Uh, he's the aircraft commander, took off that morning. He's on the other side of Memphis when all this is happening. Uh, some unique things, uh, that was his first day as an aircraft commander. Did you know that? First day as an aircraft commander. Wow. This is giving your kids the keys for the first time and say, call me if you have a problem. Right. Don't wreck the car. So Jeffrey's hearing what's going on. People are telling him to land, chaos on the radio. He declares due regard and heads off and says, we're gonna set up an orbit between um, New York and Washington, D.C. Uh, he gets into the NORAD system. Huntress, I believe, was the northeastern region. He gets into, Huntress was the call sign, he gets into their system and says, "I'm we're reporting for duty and basically goes on station. Uh, if there had been an intercept of an airliner that we would have controlled, um, as, as, as distasteful as it sounds, we would have shot that airliner down. Okay. Tough. Uh, and, and then the second airplane, basically the same thing. It was on its way to train with uh, the Jacksonville, Florida National Guard off the east coast of Florida, and it was tasked to cover the president. Hmm. A third airplane, did you know about the third airplane? Yes, the third airplane was at McCord, uh, David Hanna, I don't know if it's Dave Hanna. It was a 966 airplane, uh, which is a training squadron, so it had students on board. 
It's going to have student pilots, student flight deck. Of course, there'll be instructors with them, student in the back end. Uh, they were getting on their airplane, fixed to go crank up for a training mission. They had not heard the news. And the base ops called them and said, you need to come in, the aircraft commander and the mission crew commander, come to base ops. They went into base ops and the airbase wing commander met them, said, I need to talk to you guys. Told them what ha was happening. They were both had, you know, pretty shocked. Handed them a folder with a letter and it's signed by Secretary Rumsfeld basically explaining the authorization to shoot down an airliner wow. or any renegade airplane but an airliner so that was the first crew in the system that had actually gotten written instructions on how to do it and of course hmm. that became part of the mission packages here locally this things like this uh the previous year i was here for the black hawk shoot down recovery so and I think that was probably the wing's lowest point. We had someone court-martialed over that. And then I think their response that morning on 9-11 was one of the finest days of this wing. And I was so very fortunate to be part of both of them. Uh, but we had, we, we talked to a lot of our airmen and, and even our pilots and air crews in Michigan. They'd never been in surge operations before. They flew a flying schedule, you know. They came to flu and flew at nine o'clock or eight o'clock or whatever, and they went to this orbit. So there was, it was pretty rigid. It was pretty well cooked for them, and they just took the, picked up the flight plan um, to do surge operations. And I mean surge mm -hmm. operation. You fly an augmented flight for 18 hours, come home, go into 12 hours of crew rest. Four hours later, your airplane is cocked, mm -hmm. and someone else 12 hours later, you're going to have to go fly again. And do that for weeks on end. Right. We'd never experienced that. So every year at the end of the year, uh, end of September, you need to fly off your flying time. Mm -hmm. And traditionally, that would be just go burn up, burn up gas. We decided we'd do a week of surge operations, and we would do surge ops just exactly like we ended up doing after 9/11. So I think the wing had w immediately fell back, as all good wings will, fall back on their training. Mm -hmm. uh, Agile Sentry and that surge ops, I think, were enablers for the wing to very quickly get up on the step and, and be able to operate the way they did. And it was just a, something magnificent to behold. And then the way the reserves came, came in and immediately got involved. And our good friends, the, the tankers, mm -hmm. they hadn't been tasked, but they said, hey, you need a tanker? We're going to generate a tanker, mm -hmm. and he said, "We're not asking; we're just telling you. We'll do it." So, total force. You know, it's something we. It was a, it something was a, we've been we, fortunate here it at Tinker a, to have. It was an amazing mm -hmm. air force that day. So, yeah, that's awesome. And you know, for anybody out there that, uh, that when you're going through training, like I know, military is just expected you train, yeah. train, train, train. But yeah. uh, if, you, if there's ever a moment where you're yeah. thinking, "Man, I got to." I got to run through this training again. Well, this is a perfect example yep. of, of why that system is set up that way and so that you can engage yep. quickly. And, um, that's awesome. And great leadership, sir. Um, so in October of 2001, General, five NATO AWACS deployed here to Tinker and stayed for nine months. Um, I believe that is the, the one and only time foreign aircraft has ever deployed here, correct? Is I would say it's the, the only time foreign aircraft, we'd have our allies came over for our, our combined red flags. So 
So we had Canadian airplanes also came down here regularly and went to Nellis. So I wouldn't describe it, describe it as the first time foreign airplanes, but it was the first time NATO. There's only one group of flyers that are NATO airplanes, and that's the Guylan Kirchen E3 NATO. All the rest of the airplanes have their own country flag on it. They're British forces, they're Dutch forces, they're Turkish forces assigned to NATO. This is NATO's only airplane with their fin flash, their name on the side of it. So, yeah. And and what set that up was uh, NATO, 1949, NATO was originated. Mm -hmm. The prime article of NATO is Article 5, and it is the one that says an attack against one is an attack against all. NATO validated Article 5 within about 26 hours. Now, this is all NATO countries voting unanimous that we're at war with the United States, not with the United States, alongside of the United States against the global war on terrorism. Mm. That is incredible. That's the first time that's ever happened in the history of NATO. So that was a historic point for NATO. That's what set up the NATO deployment. But this was NATO's first and only deployment outside of Europe wow. to come here. It's incredible, and uh, incredible that you were both. It all happened right over historic. there at that desk and that phone. Right there <laughs> when it all started. So. Same office, same maybe same a different office. desk at this point. It's right. Definitely probably, a newer. Probably got a better. Probably got a better phone, but uh. <laughs> I, can, I can guarantee it's it's a newer phone. Um, and so, Colonel Coyle, sir, um, without getting into any sensitive areas, we know, we know that a lot of what the AWACS does is uh, is sensitive and and not things that we can talk about and discuss, but. Is the role of AWACS today basically the same as it was during 9-11, uh, or has that role changed somewhat? So the, the systems themselves have been changed internal to the platform. Anytime you adjust the systems in the platform, uh, mission opportunities adjust as well. And so in the, in the global war on terrorism sense, you know, counterinsurgencies-wise, this system is not built to do that. It doesn't, we don't, the radar itself doesn't, doesn't, identify people on the ground and it doesn't identify large movements like that but it does identify aircraft and so in its primary mission of doing um, force marshalling air refueling uh, combat airspace control and deconfliction all of those measures still apply today as they did then Um, over uh, over afghanistan the first the first few days of those engagements e3s were critical to deconflicting everything from um, army helicopters to marine corps support uh, to other air force aviation assets uh, flying in the in the region for the first time and so i think that's where the e3 really makes its money is it's got an opportunity to provide kind of airspace awareness and safety to aircraft commanders flying multiple airframes um, in very congested airspace and so that that provides an opportunity to meet our mission requirements in that way the other thing i think the e3 does very well is uh, work to help um, these pilots find tankers Mm -hmm. because i think uh, when you're out there in the battle space and you're you're engaged with the adversary uh, coming out of that engagement and resetting your mindset to finding the tanker is probably a challenge, and so uh, we take a little bit of that burden away from them and, and help them manage so that they can get the gas that's required to go continue the mission that they've got. And I think the E3 is unique in that respect. But um, the missions themselves kind of adjust over time, but the but the core missions have not changed. Right, so. and it, I think it's certainly important enough to note that 
uh, pulling out of a battle space to go find a refueler is not like driving your car and getting on your map your map system on your phone. And <laughs> hey, today it is. We, data links have gone a long way. I think uh, <laughs> sometimes those those data link pictures are very helpful. Right. And so that's another thing that E3 does. It's a node. It's a data link node up there. So it provides uh, a wide area surveillance data link picture that gives all kinds of assets a little bit of awareness of the airspace. And it feeds our, our Joint Forces Air Component Commander, the JFAC, uh, the overall air commander, a picture of what's happening in his airspace, in his AOR. And so it's right. awesome. Um, and so what is it like for you now, having served as a young lieutenant on that day and now 20 years later serving as a commander? I'm just trying not to screw it up. I, I think uh, it's a big wing. There's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, General Robinson said it. It hasn't changed. It's a very task organization. Um, our aircraft are now 20 years older, mm-hmm. and they uh, they struggle sometimes because they're just older. The right. supply chain, um, you can imagine having car parts for a 1964 Corvette in your garage and and then you just never need the parts and you wonder why they're taking up all that space and so over time you'll get rid of parts and then all of a sudden you're going to need it and you just can't find it in the chain it either has to be remanufactured or you've got to kind of 3d print it or figure out a way to to make the piece just to get the jet off the ground again and so that's you know challenges we have today are are dealing with uh, supply chain and aging airframes and it's just uh it's just another little friction point amongst uh, you know, kind of what we do here as a wing, but coming back from a lieutenant, as a lieutenant, I knew none of this. Right. I knew zero about this. That's how great our leadership was. Is they took care of all that. All mm-hmm. I knew is I had airplane. We had airplanes on the ramp, and they needed to go fly, and then I was having the opportunity to go fly in them and and do our mission. And and it's always been a treat. Um, I've always wanted to fly. When I joined the Air Force, I had glasses, and I knew I would uh, never be a pilot because my eyesight was too poor. So when the opportunity arose to to fly in airframes and be in the back-end mission crew side I, I jumped at the opportunity and I've loved it my entire career so awesome and certainly one of the most recognizable airframe silhouettes ever known to fly in the skies <laughs> and uh, every air show you'll ever go to the longest line bar none to get on and and view an aircraft is for sure it's the e3 AWACS that plane people just love it and, and I'm glad both of you took the time to talk about the, the task-saturated missions that run out of this wing because uh, I think it's a big compliment to you both as, as present and past leaders to lead such a, a heavy task organization um, so skillfully because, you know, the, the nation calls and, and these young men and women are after it a lot. I mean, these, these planes are flying a lot. You got any tape left? <clears throat> we have a little tape left, sir. So I think it, I think it's so very important for everyone that's out there at Tinker that's going to listen to us to understand a little bit more about this airplane. Mm-hmm. Uh, I came here in 1980. This airplane was a was a Cold War relic. Right. When we first started flying this airplane, uh, and and people like Colonel Coyle appreciate it, it was two V1 intercepts. That's two air defense fighters against a Bear H bomber carrying an AS-15 cruise missile. And that's what we had to fly our sorties against. Um, I became chief scheduler for the wing, and every now and then we would try to do something with the tactical air force, the, the, air, inter, the air superiority fighters, the air-to-ground fighters. Mm-hmm. We were not even going to a place called Red Flag. We were not doing any joint tactical force exercises. Mm-hmm. And we kind of became a little bit of a renegade, and we started working kind of secretly with 
the risks of TAC about doing more with E3s. Mm -hmm. Up at that time, any control of fighters was primarily done with ground radar. And here this new guy comes along. And finally, we started to win our way with the tactical air forces and started to move beyond air. And, and it was at times quite dicey with with air defense units saying, hey, what are you doing working with the, the first TAC fighter wing at Langley? They don't have an air 80. You mean you're working with the 106s? Uh, so we finally got beyond that. But eventually what that led to is there's only one weapon system in the United States Air Force that understands and is involved with the management of the entire spectrum of air power. Mm. Only one, and that's this one. Whether it's rescue, whether it's strategic bombardment, whether it is air intercept, air superiority fighter, whether it's air to ground fighters, if close air support, everything this airplane does is a representation of what air power does, mm. the entire spectrum. And, and when I would go out and talk to young people about coming to this weapon system, I said, there's no place else in the Air Force you're gonna see this, mm. no place else. Uh, and the Air Force, and I'm kind of free to say it now, was not very smart about how they use the people on the airplane. Our crew members were not rated. Uh, so here's the, a group of people on the back of this airplane that know more about the employment of air power than any other crew member in the entire United States Air Force, and they're not rated. I said, so I, I went on a campaign to do that and eventually culminated with sitting next to General Ryan, Chief of Staff of the Air Force, and briefing him on why our 13 Bravos, this AFSC, should be rated officers mm -hmm. because there's no one who understands air power better than they do. And he was he was a little hesitant, and and I made a comment, and he looked at me and he said, "What do you want?" I said, "I want your commitment. I want you to commit to doing this." Mm -hmm. He said, "The only reason we can't do it, and you may remember this, Colonel Coyle, was this was in I believe '89, uh, maybe '99." Says. We didn't get it in the national defense budget for the additional funding for the air, for the flight crew pay, but I I am committed that by fiscal year next year they will be rated. And then he said, I don't normally sit around as a four star general making commitments to one star generals. <laughs> and I said, oh, Well, sir, I appreciate it. And then when it broke up, I went over to his exec and I said, did you write that down? He said, I've got it written down. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir, it's, we've got it. <laughs> awesome. And that's exactly what happened. <clears throat> and all of this came out of the Blackhawk shoot down mm -hmm. because we, we didn't understand, because we didn't understand the value of AWACS, mm -hmm. we didn't utilize it the way we should have. And, and you know, being a former Army officer and a former Air Force officer, uh, I was there at Grafenvir where two four-star generals in Army and Air Force were arguing about whether or not helicopters, Army helicopters, should be on the air tasking order. Hmm. And because they were not integrated into the air tasking order and into air operations downrange, the Black Hawk shoot-down happened. Hmm. I thought it was kind of ironic that the Army helicopters were from under the command of that Army four-star and the Air Force F-15s were under the command of that Air Force four-star because they didn't make decisions in 19, 
90 that we should have made, 1994 happened. Mm. And this wing went on a campaign to train with the Army. Well, they Myself are. and someone who I know, Colonel Coyle probably knows, uh, uh, Bull Sheets. Very well. Um, Skins far off. Did you know Skins far off? Yes, I've flown F-15 for Skin. We went to we went to the Army Aviation Center, and we said, "Guys, this is screwed up," but we didn't screw it up by ourselves. And we told them. Well, this one guy said, "Robinson, have you ever been here before?" And I said, "Yeah, I've been here before." When were you at Fort Rucker? I said, "I was here in in uh, 1969 as a helicopter student." He said, well, we weren't training Air Force people. And I said, I, said, I wasn't. I was an Army pilot. Mm -hmm. And he says, you mean the Air Force has put a former Army warrant officer <laughs> in charge of this unit where two Army helicopters were shot down? I said, I don't think the Air Force knew it. <laughs> but I said, yeah, well, one, one guy by the name of Charles Chuck Horner knew it. Uh, but, yeah. And, and we became <clears throat> very close with the, with the Army. And I think that was one of the things that that's the agility of this wing. Mm -hmm. That's the importance of this wing. That's the responsibility on this wing, on his shoulders, mm -hmm. that we've got to be able to do that. Whether it is fighting wars at home, whether it is counter-drug in South America, whether it is insurgency operations in, in, uh, in Afghanistan. I mean, I've been on some missions that were crazy, tracking the MiG-25 that took off out of East Germany every day and ran at the border and quickly broke off. There was a thing called Brass Monkey. Did that. I was followed the first airplane we tracked and counter drugs that landed at White Fawn Ranch outside of Amarillo, Texas, and we captured that airplane. Uh, so I've had a lot of opportunities to see this, this wing mature in a way that has kept pace, if not outpaced, the United States Air Force. Right. When we went to HF email, you probably used HF email. Hmm. That was two friends from Armed Forces Staff College that got to talking one day, and we built that program up. Yeah. The old sled dogs, I don't know if you sled dogs, <laughs> probably ended up what you were doing, mm -hmm. worked, worked with sled dogs. Um, so it's, it's, this wing is, this is, there's a reason this is called America's Wing. Right. We didn't, we earned that title. There's probably from 1977 when these airplanes first arrived, there's not been another wing that has done what this wing has done for its country than the 552nd. None. So, I mean, I love, love this wing, as you can probably tell. Yes, sir. And, and I think that's a great place to wrap up this conversation. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tinker Talks. Before we do close out this episode, we want to take a moment to acknowledge that some of the conversation within this episode and recent events from the last couple weeks of what's going on around the world could trigger some difficult emotions. Please remember, there are resources available to help you get through the difficult times or emotions. The important thing is to reach out and get help if you need it. Also, be a good wingman. Keep an eye on the family, friends, and co-workers. If you see them having difficult times, reach out and let them know that they do not have to go through these tough times all by themselves. They have help. Resources are available at Military One Source and also on the Tinker website. If you go on to tinker.af.mil, there's a red Get Help button at the top right-hand side of the page. Inside that webpage are numerous resources to assist in any area needed. 
check it out. It's an absolutely incredible uh, source of information and help. Uh, you can also call Military Crisis Line at 1-800-273-8255 and then press 1. Again, that's the Military Crisis Line at 1-800-273-8255 and press 1. Or you can access the online chat by texting 838255. Again, the online chat, you can get to that by texting 838255. Our people are our biggest strength, and unified together, we're an unstoppable force. Get help if you need it. It's available for you. And until next time, be safe, treat each other with respect, and have a great day.